Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 338 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Today's episode is brought to you by Generis and Pro Media Fire. My guest is Sean Morgan. Sean is not only somebody who flies military jets, he is the vice president of leadership capital for CDF. He is the host of the podcast Leaders in Living Rooms, which you may have heard me talk about before. I subscribe to that podcast. It's incredible. And Sean's someone I've gotten to get to know over the last few years. Not only is he a former executive pastor, but he just has an incredible understanding of leadership and also crisis leadership and to some extent, wartime conditions, military conditions. So uh, I wanted to pick his brain as we all go through these very unusual times that we're in and try to find our way to normal, whatever that happens to look like. And I think you're going to find Sean's advice on leading through unpredictability, uh, leadership lessons from the military and how to prepare for the new normal. So, so helpful. And, um, Hey, I just want to let you know, we have seen a huge spike in traffic over the last month as people, new people tune in. If you're one of them, thank you so much for tuning in. If you've shared episodes, thank you for doing that. Hey, if you enjoy today's episode, make sure you share it on social media, tag myself and tag Sean. And uh, a couple of other things, just to let you know, we have show notes. Yeah, we do those for every episode. You can find show notes with everything we talk about links and quotes and insights at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 338. We also try to bring you the very best in navigating these times in leadership over at kerryneuhoff.com. I write a blog and we provide a lot of uh, free resources for you. If you haven't yet checked out my How to Lead Through Crisis course, we are pushing 10,000 leaders who have gone through that in the last 30 days. And you can actually find that at howtoleadthroughcrisis.com or text the word crisis to 33777. We're doing our best to get behind you 100%. And so is Generis. Uh, they just have a new free ebook called Your 2020 Budget Just Blew Up. Now what? What a great title. Despite what many church leaders believe, the economy is not the main driver of your financial health. Economic cycles simply reveal what was already happening below the surface. And if you want to change what's happening below the surface, go to generis.com forward slash carry 2020 and download the free ebook today. They've also got a complimentary support hotline if you need any in-the-moment assistance. So if you just want to pick somebody's brain, they will do that for you. You will see that option at generis.com forward slash carry 2020 as well. That's G-E-N-E-R-I-S.com forward slash carry C-A-R-E-Y 2020. And you can download all that for free. Get all the support. Your 2020 budget did just blow up. And if you want to know how to create some financial health moving into the future, uh, they will help you with that. Also, things are moving lightning fast and we're walking into the new normal. But what if you had a digital coach to help you successfully navigate this unknown space? I think one thing we've all learned in the last two months is 
Uh, digital kind of matters, and Promedia Fire has realized that for a while. They're providing digital coaching and out-of-the-box creativity sessions to help you reach more people, not only in this moment, but beyond. And creative coaching is what drives their most successful program. It's called the Church Growth Program. Here's what that includes. Custom website, digital marketing, social media management, custom graphics and videos. And right now, for a very limited time, you get 40% off the regular price. To apply, you have to apply for this and book a digital strategy session with Promedia Fire. Go to promediafire.com forward slash church growth. That's promediafire.com forward slash church growth. Well, I'm so excited to bring you my conversation with Sean Morgan. Why don't we just get started? Here it is. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Carrie, what a joy to be on here. Thank you for having me. Well, I, uh, you've had me on yours, and it's a great show. I love it. Leaders in Living Rooms, and uh, love the concept behind it. And uh, you have the most wonderful, strange resume, I would say, of any leader I think I've met. Uh, the first time we talked, you were flying a military jet over either the Middle East or Afghanistan or something like that. What? Tell, yeah. us, tell us how you got to this point in life. Yeah, well, it wasn't by design, you know. I, it really wasn't. I um, I didn't have intentions of getting in ministry as a young kid. I was fascinated with aviation, and I liked the military, and so there was some some wanderlust there. But I ended up um, not because I had great grades and stuff. I'm a I'm a good example of a B plus student who made it into the Air Force Academy. But um, I went to the prep school at the Air Force Academy, so it took me about five years to do what everybody else does in four. But graduated there with honors and um, kind of the the thing about the military is it's sort of a young person's business. So when you get commissioned as an officer, your first job you have people working for you that have way more experience and understanding. So you're sort of thrust into leadership and you learn quickly a lot about the difference between being in charge Mm -hmm. and experience and influence and the different dynamics that those present. And so there's a great story I could tell you about a commander's call that I was at where the boss, the, the general came in the room and there's 30 or maybe even 50 people in this room and I was a young lieutenant, right? And that's military code for the guy in charge that doesn't actually know what they're doing, the, the <laughs> lieutenant terminology. And I remember, this might've been my first week on the job. And I remember the boss ran the meeting. And after the meeting, there are some sort of leathery, old, like chief master sergeant kind of guys, like the guys that run the Air Force, um, hardworking guys. And I remember two or three of these people, a lot of stripes on their sleeves. I didn't know them at the time, but they congregated after the meeting and followed a civilian guy down the hallway to his office. And I started asking questions, who's the civilian guy? And it turns out he's a guy who had been there for 20 years and was just a staple of wisdom. And it wasn't dysfunctional anyway. He wasn't, wasn't the meeting after the meeting, but it was that he was the guy that was mentoring and coaching and bringing wisdom into making the machine happen behind the scenes. And that was my first clue of, yeah, you have the meeting and there's authority and direction. And so you just start learning things at a young age in military. Uh, The ministry side of me, um, I basically was grew up in a church plant. When you're a kid, you don't know. It's a Mm. church plant. It's just church. And ultimately, the Air Force moved me to the San Francisco Bay Area, and I got involved with another church plant. 
and uh, got called into ministry as the executive pastor there. Uh, a guy named Tom Rayner, who oh, used yeah. to be the CEO uh-huh. at, at Lifeway, wrote a book that featured some stuff about that church called Breakout Churches. And because of that, people began asking us for some coaching advice and things like that. And that turned into what I do now. And every step of the way has been, I don't know what's next. I'm just trying to answer what God's asking me to do right now. Well, it's so interesting because, you know, I joke with you when we're together that you're uh, the best connected church leader that church leaders have never heard of. And I think that's really true. There's almost nobody that you don't have on your contact list on your phone. And uh, you have this amazing convening power. Like when Sean calls, people listen. And mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of interesting. Anything else you learned about position and influence in the military or other lessons from the military that have informed your leadership? Because I must say, I'm pretty, uh, I really admire how you lead. And uh, I really haven't seen anyone who, like you, doesn't, doesn't have a, a position, a title that would mm-hmm. say, oh, everybody picks up this guy's phone call. I mean, yeah, you're a, you know, a vice president or director with, uh, with a major corporation, uh, that is in the parachurch space. But there's lots of people with that job title, but very few people with your influence. So I'm just curious if the military taught you anything else on that. I don't know if it's the military directly, um, certainly in much, much of me overall, just top to bottom is influenced by the military. But I think there's, the, there's a sense of um, stewardship. So I would say respect and honor, mm. Um, there's a sense of, of stewardship. Like I get, I have the opportunity to do something today that's going to influence others. And when you're doing that in the local church space or the ministry space, there's such an incredible kingdom potential that I, I think I, I consciously don't breathe in or breathe out without just a sense of every door that was opened is an opportunity And then because of the military, here's where the military comes in. So I think there's this opportunity mindset. um, And we probably don't talk about it enough in the ministry space, but the aspect of warfare. And the truth is, if if you're in charge, if you're placed in charge, you're stewarding that, right? So so, uh, the Roman centurion in Matthew 8 says, Mm -hmm. I know what authority is because I'm under authority. And then I have authority that passes through me to my troops. And he's, he's talking about realizing that Jesus has God the Father's authority. And so, but if you're in those positions, you have this, okay, opportunity is a great word to use, but from a warrior's perspective, you almost have a responsibility. Like if you put mm. somebody in charge and you train and develop them and you you give them a weapon and it's wartime, they don't just have an opportunity to go do something. They almost have a responsibility. And so I, I think without being overly dysfunctional, I think I do have a sense of, of responsibility and stewardship and honor that kind of blends to um, some things there. And then honestly, I just, I take so much joy in being around pure-hearted leaders that are, are influencing others um, that it just actually is really fun. So being extroverted a little bit, I think helps there too. <laughs> <laughs> you really like people. I can tell that. Yeah. yeah. yeah I want to come back to influence a little bit later, but while before we leave the military entirely, um, this is the first week of May. We normally do not timestamp these episodes, but hey, yeah. the world's upside down. My yes. guess is, even though we're recording this a few weeks in advance, that yeah. perhaps there is some gradual reopening of America and Europe by this point. And if not, mm-hmm. it's probably on the horizon or maybe things have gone horribly wrong. Who knows? I don't yeah. know. Um, 
But I want to talk to you about what you learned about crisis leadership from the military. Mm -hmm. We've had Bobby Herrera on, Ken Costa, Mm -hmm. some others on. Uh, Bobby had military experience too. They've talked about VUCA uh, on this podcast, which was, I'd heard about it, but I'm like, oh yeah, that's what it is. What did you learn? What did the military teach you or leadership so far teach you about crisis leadership? Yeah, in aviation as a pilot, you know, every flight, you're sort of cheating death in some ways. And so I think there's always that aspect of, of leadership. And, and if you do aviation long enough, you will have some crisis leadership in aviation. Things will go wrong. And then, then you also have the aspect of combat. So I've done four tours in Iraq, Afghanistan, and, and Syria, most recently in about 2017. And every day is an opportunity in combat uh, be, uh, dealing with crisis. And there's a sense that uh, there's a phrase in the military you may have heard that says, no battle plan ever survives contact with the enemy. Hmm. And it doesn't mean that a battle plan isn't a wonderful thing, and, and it actually serves as a, as a fantastic true north. But I think one of the things that you have to do in crisis is you have to understand that your perspective is a limited perspective, and there's always a higher command authority perspective. And so you have to blend what you're seeing and acting on in the moment with what the true intent of the battle plan was. Because what you get swept up into, actually, I I even say the phrase, you know, oftentimes we don't even have the gear in the well, meaning like we're on takeoff roll and we're raising the gear and flying out out of the base. We don't even have the gear in the well yet and the plan is already changing and we could still Mm. be hours from a combat environment. And so I think you have to have that perspective that what you're seeing is important to be, excuse me, flexible, and adaptable with and those types of things. But at the very same time, you always have to have the the respect that there's a different vantage point of things going on. And so ultimately flexibility, the plan acts as a great true north, um, but in crisis, flexibility is key. You have to be, be able to go, what is the most important objective we are after today? And all these moving parts are, need to be aligned and pointing toward that. But things are changing for every everybody. A great example without getting into to tactics and, and details was, I remember a mission in, in 2017 and there was a couple tankers in the area. We also were dealing with weather and thunderstorm, springtime thunderstorm weather around that part of the world, the thunderstorms are as big as I've seen mm. anywhere. Um, thunderstorms where the clouds are up, uh, up well above 40,000 feet, massive thunderstorms. And the objective for basically every day in the Air Force is, is, is almost true entirely would be supporting the troops on the ground. Those are our customers. So we always have to be oriented to that. And the weather was affecting a lot of what was happening with the airplanes, but it was not affecting where our customers were at and what they needed to do. And so I just remember some things that happened that uh, some other aircraft and some other tankers began to move, change, change position and move out of, out of areas that were being affected by weather. And I realized some of this was just experience that, that some of the other aircraft that we needed to support as a tanker were going to have to cancel their mission if we moved more than, you know, just a few miles from where we were and those types of things. And so just being flexible to say, hey, 
what other things can we do to avoid that weather, to get in position, to serve our, our, the attack aircraft and those types of things that need the fuel that the tankers provide to the fight. And so the other aspect to that, I think in crisis leadership, so step one is realize that there's always a better, per, there's always a higher perspective, a more, more global mm. perspective. Um, and to pull back. And I think that really, we can get into that with the church. I think that really is happening now. And we're, be, we're beginning to see some real God stories happen through all of this. The second thing is be flexible, be willing to adapt. Uh, that also played to churches. We saw some churches that adapted early and well to this and some churches that, that didn't. And the last thing is this idea of risk. And I would say appropriate risk is when the weather moves in metaphorically, what risks can you take to still focus on the mission, you know, the great commission for a church? And so those types of things, I think, really, for me, coming in, in from um, combat environment and aviation leadership is you got to have that sort of mental clarity to remember those key principles. And I think it allows you to um, be, be a more um, predictable leader, which is highly important, especially the larger the crowd around you, the more predictable um, and a steady leader, which is really important not to be a leader that provokes panic and fear, even when there's good cause for panic and fear, like coronavirus, like combat. You said something that really intrigued me, uh, and I hadn't thought about that. I've never been in battle. I've never been in the military, mm -hmm. um, but respect those who who are and who have. But this idea that no battle plan ever survives contact with the enemy Right. So right. let's go into that because I think that is an actual factor that's happening right now in crisis management. And we don't have a battle plan. We're kind of living without one right now because yeah. everyone's trying to figure this out. But there is probably even more so by the time this podcast uh, airs an emerging consensus about what the new normal might look like or what mm -hmm. wise action is. So on the one hand, you have um, your orders, so to speak, this guidance that you should follow. On the other hand, you're flying the plane and going, wow, that sun thunderstorm is big and it's developing in real time. How mm -hmm. do you balance as a leader? Because I think this has been a problem for all of us in this crisis. Your gut on the field with the orders that you got from above or the wisdom, mm -hmm. whatever that looks like. Hey, prevailing consensus right now is that you should do X, but my God on the ground says, I'm not so sure. Any, mm -hmm. any principles or insights into that? Because I think it's a real tension of crisis leadership. Yeah, there's, I mean, there are so many great stories in the combat environment where um, I think experience really plays into that is mm. if you've seen things play out over other um, attack plans and other, other days and hours, we really, in, in aviation, measure, measure combat and hours. Um, experience really helps, but I, I do think you have to go back and say, what's the intent of the original order, right? Ah. And, and sometimes in order to be carried out well has detail in it that becomes irrelevant, but the intent of the order doesn't become irrelevant. And so maybe in church, we, we start teasing out this idea and, and um, I don't know who said it, but this idea of being married to the mission and dating the methods. And yep. what, what methods have become so critical to us that we're, we're focused on that and we're losing sight of the mission. And so in an environment that's changing, can we go, well, what's the real intent of that method? We know what the method is. 
um, had a call yesterday with with uh, one of the most wise ministry leaders and amazing men and pastors on the planet, Larry Osborne. Mm. And he said, many times we focus too much on the watering schedule and we forget about the fruit that we're after. Yeah. And I think sometimes that's a great metaphor and, and Larry's so, so able to sort of condense down these thoughts and phrases. And I think that's certainly an element for the church is to go back one of the things that I would say with this is, here's the deal. We have a 2,000-year track record of growing the church amidst many pandemics, many mm. global things that change the world, like world wars and beyond. And the church has come out on the other side stronger and healthier and, and probably has grown. And so I think you have to begin to put yourself in that mindset of, we don't know what that looks like six, 12, 24 months from now. Um, but I think we can be confident that the church will not just survive, but will thrive and then begin to center ourselves. Like, how do we think creatively? How do we think like pioneers on staying mission focused <laughs> and being willing to drop cancel, postpone, realign, restructure teams, budgets, um, and methods in order to see that happen. So let's go there. So as yeah. we record this, we're about a month, five weeks into the crisis right now. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think that the dust is settling, but it's not the chaos of week one or week two. Right. And you are hyper-connected largely with, uh, and we'll get into this a little bit later in the podcast, but for those leaders who don't know you, uh, and I think this has application to the business space and in the church space, but you basically work with successors of large churches mm -hmm. and to some extent their predecessors. So what I did with Jeff Brody, he's in one of your cohorts right now. Mm -hmm. You know, people my age hand the church off to the next generation. Mm -hmm. You spend a little bit of time with people like me, a lot of time with the successors who are mostly at this point millennials or very young Gen Xers taking mm -hmm. over from boomer and older Gen Xers leaders. So you have a, and, and they tend to be larger churches that you are working with. So as you've watched the first four or five weeks of crisis leadership, um, what are some patterns you are seeing in churches that you think are responding well to the crisis so far? Going back to that idea of flexibility, the, the first thing I saw and I had the, I was actually with a cohort. It was sort of a, a just a God thing and a gift. I was with a cohort that I've been with for a number of years, very close with these guys. And we were actually in Vegas the week of uh, the 9th of March mm -hmm. 9th, Monday, March 9th. And when so it all we fell had, apart that week. Yeah, the week yep. that it all fell apart. And, and so we were with the team at Central, Jed Wilhite, and then some just some amazing leaders in churches, young leaders that are all in succession positions. And so we had the gift, I thought, you could feel it happening that week. Like you didn't know what was going on and, and where where things were going to be changing, but you knew this was a week where things were going to start snowballing. When the NBA One of the cancels its season, then the NHL does, Major League yep. Baseball, that's off. You know, yep. borders are closing. You're like, whoa, what's going on? Yeah, exactly. So we had the opportunity to be together and to think through that. And I thought, oh, we're all going to have to race home. It's going to be a horrible week to be together. But it turned out to be just an amazing um, gift. So the leaders, they're, they're, even in that group, there were just lots of conversations as people oriented their minds around, um, we're going to make a decision now 
for Sunday, March 15th, versus other leaders who say, we're going to wait as long as we can. And of course, by the time Sunday, March 15th rolled around, the restrictions on gatherings were so severe that most churches didn't meet, and the ones that did couldn't really meet with any real size. And so one of the first things I realized was there was an amount of of, um, preparedness that certain churches had and didn't have where they, where they teed up well to do this. And what I, what I mean by that is not necessarily streaming something online or recording something and posting it online. I think a lot of it actually had to do with set, being set up well for communication. Could they communicate mm. with their church? And the leaders that could do that and made decisions, I'm going to say like Wednesday of that week, I think it was the 11th, they had the highest attendance on March 15th in terms of engagement because they were able to communicate well, pivot and be flexible saying, we don't know where this is going, but we're going to make a decision and begin to communicate clearly. And I think that's a principle in this is um, flexibility is important. Communication is important. And when you communicate in a time of uncertainty, you have to be careful that you don't communicate certainty that you don't control, but you can communicate clarity. And so they were clear about certain things and amidst all the other changes that was going going on, and most businesses at this point, I would say, have been hit harder than churches have. Yeah. Um, those churches were set up well by being flexible and adapting quickly. I think those things were were really, really critical. Um, can, can I ask just to drill yeah. down a little bit more? You mentioned communication, which is actually, as soon as you said it, I'm like, well, of course. And then I thought, yeah, but that is not intuitive. And it's a surprise. It's an outlying kind of indicator of success. Was that via social, email, or what were their channels of communication? I'd love to get granular on that. I think to, in today's day and age, um, critical is is email for sure. Yeah. Still, but it's it's some of everything. It right. really is some of everything. And but they had built their email list. They had built a social media following. Mm-hmm. You know, the the infrastructure was there. They didn't try to create it in the moment. They didn't have to create it in the moment. And I think there's even another layer deeper in this. If This is a little bit of conjecture, but from my experience, I would say one of the things that was critical in something like social media following, and not, not, and let's not talk about numbers. Let's just say you got mm. two churches with, with a couple thousand emails and a couple thousand people on, on uh, their social following. Have you trained your people to listen when you email them, right? I'm going to applaud. That's right? brilliant. Yeah. And and so a, a thousand uh, member uh, list that nobody pays attention to anymore, or when they see it, they'll go, oh, I'll read that next week when I have time. That's totally different than a church who sends something out and they go, oh, that's from my pastor or that's from you know my church. And- I'm going to read that now, or I'm going to read that at break time or something like that. Those are different things in that. I think that honestly, I think that takes years. And so the, when I say they were set up, well, it wasn't just, they had some tech and, and they could produce something, but they had the the numbers from a communication standpoint and the culture of people who paid attention. See, that's so good because, you know, there were memes and jokes that first week or two from every organization you ever subscribed to via email who like what we're doing about COVID-19. And it's like, I I haven't heard from you in three years. I didn't even know I was on your list. And now you're telling me what the CEO is doing about COVID-19. Like, dude, I don't care. 
Like, you know, we haven't heard about you forever. Uh, but I think that's a really good point that the systems that you use on a regular basis mm-hmm. are set up to serve you when there's a crisis. That's a really good ongoing. So, you know, churches that got caught, leaders that got caught, frankly, business leaders that got caught, it's like caught. Oh, yeah, we have this email list. Oh, yeah, we have the social media account. Who knows the password? They're, they're in much worse shape when a crisis hits than those that are regularly communicating with with their customers, with their audience, with their congregation. So good. What else are you seeing in terms of best practices in these first five weeks from top leaders? Let's see, some other best practices. I'll, I'll tell you, let me start with some things that are not best practices. So kind yeah, of sure. like, you know, when- That's, when, that's not that hard. So let's when, go there. When Jesus says, love is, love is, and then he also says, you know, um, love isn't. When I think about best practices, uh, certainly one of the best practices very quickly becomes financial margin. And the quickest way to deal with financial margin is almost 100% of the time is to manage your expenses. And so I think leaders that did some best practices versus some worst practices, um, one of the worst would be leaders who panicked and sent out emails to everybody that said something attuned to church is canceled, but we need your help. And both of those are wrong, right? Yeah. Um, both of those are, are, are the wrong things to do because church isn't canceled. Church is moved. And, and we need your help is basically what the people who probably do have resources, the first thing that makes them think is, I don't know if you're the type of leader who's going to be using these resources wisely. Like if you're already mm-hmm. in panic mode. Um, and so I think churches who right off the bat said, before we even communicate about income and giving, let's manage expenses in a way where we can respond quickly. Like we're gonna, we're gonna travel, we're gonna cancel travel and a lot of optional things like that in our budget. So that's usually not huge numbers, but it begins to make a difference pretty quickly. Five percent, ten percent. We're going to look at contracts we have in place that don't have a penalty that we can cancel. We might be able to do without some some things right now. And so I think those leaders responded well. I think there have there are also leaders that have um, did a call with Joel Manby. You were on that call a few weeks ago. Yeah, Joel will be Joel on the said, podcast soon. I think I'm interviewing him tomorrow. So Are you? Awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, he's going to be fantastic. He was really, really amazing with this group of leaders, and, and he's led through massive economic downturn and uh, just a, an exceptional guy. But one of the things that he said is, is that, you know, you take, take the pain equally, like don't dish mm-hmm. it out here and there. And so I've had some churches that have responded really well to that, where they're saying senior leadership is going to take a 10% cut. Um, you know, middle leadership is going to take 5% and everybody else is going to take 3%. And then we are going to eliminate some jobs that we can eliminate. And it's allowed them to create margin and stay, stay nimble and more focused on what they need to do week in and week out. And actually, the feedback that I'm getting from those leaders is because they did things early, because they communicated clearly because they showed, you know, like Joel's book, Love Works, the, the, mm. the Seven Principles of Love from uh, Corinthians, is um, that they were in it with their teams. The feet, everything actually has gone up in terms of culture and morale. Because now what people may have been worried about is, am I going to lose my job? Am I going to get cut 50%? Now they're going, oh, well, no, you only got a 3% cut. And the church is doing this in a way that is creating more financial margin, and we're able to focus exactly on 
what we need to do to do the mission week to week, all these other things have been paused and people have been realigned. That's actually like a blanket of comfort for a lot of people because now they have increased trust in their leadership. They're seeing Mm. leaders adapt. So from a giving perspective, like a congregational member, they're seeing that responding and going, wow, the church is staying focused on the mission. They're getting results. They're staying financially healthy. They're not getting into an emergent state. And from the staff team and whatnot, you have clarity on things. So uh, it was just such an across the board win. But like you like you say, there's always a dark side to everything. From a leader's perspective, most leaders feel the weight of that. Like there's some personal shame. Um, I failed my team, right? Those types of things that leaders carry. And so that's why I think where, where a lot of my work comes in is getting leaders together to be able to just, you don't necessarily, it's not necessarily going to go away, but to be able to talk about that going, yeah, I did mm-hmm. this thing and I feel confident that this was right. And yet I feel horrible about it. I don't know that there's an answer to this question, but you've really got me thinking because, you know, we travel in the same circles. I know a lot of the mm-hmm. leaders in that room. And I remember getting that document, you, Sean, just some shop doc here out yeah. of that week, you with those leaders set mm-hmm. apart three scenarios. You know, what happens if it, we, did, we didn't even know we were going to lose access to our building when you wrote that, but like, right. what if attendance drops 10%, 30%, 50%, 100%? What are these financial scenarios? But what I'm noticing, and I just want to float this by you, yeah. is that most of the leaders who responded well to this crisis, the new template, as uncertain as everything was, was it in place within a couple of weeks? It's like they acted early, they they rebooted early, they stabilized as much as they could. Usually within seven to 14 days, there was some kind of clear, like we have no idea what's happening in the world, but this is our plan. Was that a characteristic or is that an oversimplification that most of those leaders by the second week had a plan together, an interim plan together that would guide them through the next 30 days? I would say that's pretty close. It, yeah. it, by the second week, I would say they had clarity on a plan, but they needed to communicate that, get the elder buy-in and things like that. So it was probably after the second week where it began, began being implemented, but somewhere right around that 14-day mark, I think they, they probably had clarity on it. Yeah, yeah, because that's something I saw too. So here's, here's, here's the question I don't know whether you can answer, but I'm just curious. <laughs> Let's do it. What is that? What is that? Why? Because none of us, I mean, I think anybody who says this is exactly what's going to happen and mm-hmm. this is what it's going to look like. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I had no idea this was all going to happen. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know anybody who would say that they did. So what is that? That within two or three weeks, you got a plan together. You got a, it's not normal yet, but you've got mm-hmm. some stability, some clarity and an action plan. And your team is actually mobilized and ready to go. What is that? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's it's good leadership. It's calm amidst the storm. Um, but I, I do like this idea of a three-tiered plan. And I would even say, as churches are thinking about what the future looks like, you know, we can get there at some point in the oh, conversation um, of saying, okay, well, like, let's, let's talk um, like the far extreme one direction, the far extreme another direction, and then some sort of middle ground. And then let's talk about, like, let's put labels on those. Let's try to put quantitative analysis into those. What do the numbers around those look like? And so you could say, like, one's a conservative approach, a moderate approach, and um, a really, like, you know, um, extreme approach to what could happen. You know, for instance, like, 
let's say uh, the extreme approach right now might be something along the lines of that there are no large gatherings, period, for 18 months until there's a vaccine. Right. Right. Which is so being think, talked about. I mean, that, it, yeah, that's not right. like crazy talk. That That right. is some kind of possibility. Absolutely. And, and I think you could get there even if, let's say, authorities allowed gatherings. But we know right now, I think there was a survey from Seton Hall about NFL fans who was comfortable going to an NFL game. And 72% of the respondents said they would not go to an NFL game until there's a vaccine. Like there, there was no data. Isn't that interesting? That. Yeah. Who wants the middle seat on an airplane, right? There's the legal lifting, but then there's the psychological permission. And yep. we're all going to shop differently. We're all going to feel differently for I don't know how long when that guy next to us at the grocery store sneezes, right? Mm-hmm. Or coughs. It's going to be like, oh, I don't know what that is. Whereas before it'd be like, dude, stay home. But yeah, you're right. So, okay, keep playing with that. So let's say it's 18 months or two years mm-hmm. until large gatherings repopulate. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's one extreme. And so then you, you say, okay, well, let's say, what would our response be in that? You don't have to spend weeks on that, but spend an hour with your team talking about that and then put it together for a moderate approach that's that looks different. And then let's just say that next week we start hearing that, some things from uh, reopenings in Europe and Asia that we're reading about start to come into low-risk people and low-risk communities in the United States. And that begins to um, tear out throughout the summer. So I think you can look at that. And then one of the beauties about this is, is the leader can sort of direct, here's how we're going to approach this and then bring in the team. And you know, people are going to own things that they're a part of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you want buy-in, let people be in is another great leadership quote from somebody that uh, is prob- probably somebody you know. Um, and so now they're taking ownership in forming that plan. And then you go to, you know, your senior team, um, uh, limit maybe a more limited number or your elders, and you begin to say, okay, which one do we believe we're going to position ourselves uh, best for? And I think in all those scenarios, you have to begin to look at also the question of, I think you can kind of say, well, we're just going to buy time until we can reopen and do things that we've always done, right? Mm -hmm. Just go back to business as usual. And so that's one type of conversation to have through that. Another type of conversation is to begin asking, hopefully when people are paying attention to your blog and they're seeing like, oh, we've gone to 49% of churches in the United States are growing right now. Like maybe there are some things like, uh, again, going back to that idea that over 2000 years, the church has survived all sorts of craziness. The church will survive this craziness and the church will be stronger on the other side. Um, You're seeing parents leading their families in ways spiritually that they've never done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the whole principle of, of orange, of, uh, I think, you know, yellow and red come together and orange is the church and the family working together to disciple the children and the youth. Um, you're seeing that happen in all sorts of ways. There are incredible stories. You don't have to go very far on social media to see some amazing things. So are we actually restructuring in ways now that even if we went back to normal, we would say, we want these things to actually be a part of the fabric of the church. We want to think more about the other six days of the week and how we do ministry than just Sunday morning and kind of going from 
I like to use the metaphor, like when you're painting, you have a canvas and canvas has a vertical and horizontal weave in it. And we need to think about all ministry is being painted on a canvas that has a digital aspect and a physical aspect to it. And that encompasses children's every day of the Mm -hmm. week, youth every day of the week, all sorts of the discipleship. And um, there needs to be some really creative things that come out of this. I believe the church should lead the way in this. Our mission is too important not to be leading the way. Um, I'll give you an example that of something in the back of my mind as I think about, okay, so we're going to take this tiered approach and then we're going to take an attitude of what sort of things are actually potentially healthier for the church to be doing on a continuum basis that we've learned because of this crisis. And if you have that spirit, the opportunity is endless. But my daughter is headed off to college in the fall if, if they meet. And so there's a great metaphor in what's going on with her is that she is going, she knows she's going to gather with a group of people, right? Your church, even the new people you are reaching and the new salvations that you're having in your church, you know, at some point you're very likely to gather with these people. Um, and what's happening organically is these, these um, teens, right? These rising freshmen, there's all these apps out there that begin to allow them to get to know each other Mm-hmm. and communicate with one another, build relationships before they gather the first time. And so there's this incredible thing where like you go onto these apps and you forward them your screenshot of your acceptance letter to a school. So then you get put into the the freshman, the incoming freshman class for that school. And like when I, when I went to college and I was actually enrolled in Penn State uh, before I went to the Air Force Academy, I never went to Penn State, but I just signed up for dorm a dorm room and I got a letter, you know, like, hey, this is going to be your dorm and you've been assigned a roommate or that sort of thing. Um, that's how it went then. But now they're connecting with one another and they're they're putting in all these characteristics of of what they like in in lifestyle. And mm. so they're able to pair each other. Like my daughter, within a week of declaring what school she's going to, has already she started just by looking at what are how, what's the culture of this group of people that are coming into this school. And people begin to sort themselves by their intended major. And so you get smaller bubbles. People begin to sort themselves by which side of campus they want to live on. And then you begin to sort yourself, like what sort of things do you like in terms of activities? What sort of, what are your study habits? Do you like other people in your room, like having a party every day? Or do you want your room empty so you can study? And it's been this amazing thing for me to see organically what 18-year-olds are doing right now as they prepare to gather and meet and be in community with one another at a college campus. And I just can't help but think there's so much there that the church can begin to see and build that will yield incredible fruit. But if that's the people's pathway to digital interaction first, sort of just watching and looking and then interacting and then true engaging and then meeting, then maybe there's something there and the church is going to begin to figure this out. So whether it's a few months away, a few weeks away, or a few years away, I think the church will ultimately be a better, stronger, healthier church, and our mission will be more fruitful, I hope and I pray. That's a fresh thought. I'm so glad that you raised it. And you're right, you know, people people criticize, not so much this week, but in the early days, that 
digital is so impersonal, but there are certain ways in which digital enables far more personal connection and interaction rather than randomly assembling. Because I remember my first week of college too, it's like, yeah, here I am, the only guy, you know, I don't know anybody here, just within a whole, you're in a whole bunch of randoms. It's like, I don't know who mm-hmm. you are, try to make a friend, but you can you can precede a lot of that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I want to back up to what you were saying earlier and, you know, Jeff is doing a great job leading Conexus. So I'll just pull this mm-hmm. example from my company. But we all flew into San Diego in February, did a three-day offsite, kind of strategic planned uh, 2020, rolled out the next 12 months. And then obviously the world blew up about a month later and uh, we met virtually and kind of recalibrated what does this look like? It's like free. We're going to do a free course. We're going to launch a second podcast. We're going to mm-hmm. do this. We're going to serve our leaders. We're going to ramp up our content. We're going to run a Instagram TV video series. And so we went into, we're just going to serve, 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 help, help, help. And then literally today as we're recording this, we went into the next phase, which is what else can we do to serve the church? We got a whiteboard full to serve leaders of ideas. And next week, we're going to finalize that. Then we're going to go into production for the spring and the summer. But that, to me, feels like we just did three annual plans in 30 days so far, mm-hmm. 45 yep. days. It, I guess that's what crisis leadership is like, right? You Because when you were talking about it and some of the practices of other leaders, it's like, well, here's what we're going to do right now. Here's mm-hmm. what we're doing ahead. Is it like you're just rolling over strategic plans Every, I don't know, 15 to 45 days? I think you have to, when, when there's a lot of unknowns, you have to begin to ask yourself, what do we know today that we didn't know when we made this decision? And that should cause you to question the decision. Now, you can't get up every day and do that about every decision the prior day because you'll no. never make progress. And Ken Costa on your podcast released yesterday talked about, you know, you, if you're expecting 100% clarity in, on information before you make a decision, you're just never going to make a decision. And, and so I think you have to realize that. But there's also something called, uh, I learned recently, the, the term called um, Chesterton's fence, which comes from G.K. Chesterton. And basically, he has this rule and if you've been to England, we, we all know fences are not made of, of cheap wood and put up in a day. They're made yeah. of stone and they're there for thousands of years. And the, the moral of this, the principle behind it is that if you're going to take down a fence, you need to know why it was there in the first place before you do that. Because that fence didn't happen haphazardly. Somebody put time, energy, and money to building that for a purpose and I think in times of crisis, you do have to lean a little bit more toward adaptation and flexibility, but there needs to be an undertone of understanding the principles. If we're unwinding something or changing something that's working or has been working, let's let's know why. And I realize there's a little bit of, of tension in what I just said, of mm-hmm. be adaptable, make change, you know, be nimble and pause. Uh, but I think good leaders know how to live in the gray and still find the clarity and move the mission forward. I think and you're so right. I think you're right. Yeah. And by Church the way, you guys canceled, are doing it. Group isn't canceled. Community's not canceled, but suddenly we're all doing Zooms, you know, yep. or uh, Facebook watch parties or streaming. And so the idea is you keep the principal community, you keep mm-hmm. the principal connection, evangelism, discipleship, 
you just found a new method that will lead you through it. You know, I think, yeah. I, and I think you're right. It's mission and methods, mission and methods, mission and methods. Anything else, good and bad practices in this first uh, season of the crisis that you think is worth noting? I think another good practice has been frequency of communication. You know, I've heard uh, our, our friend David Kinneman, I think, tweeted something along the lines of, I'm glad the decade of March 2020 is finally over. I think he tweeted that on April yeah. 1st. And yeah. it's just recognizing that when you're in isolation, um, especially for, you know, I've got uh, two teenagers in the house and an amazing bride and a dog. And so even on lockdown, it feels different for me, but there's a lot of people who are much more alone. And I'm even finding my, my extreme introvert friends are telling me, yeah, okay, 30 days was enough. I'm ready to see some yeah. people, right? Kind of thing. Even I miss people right now, Sean. So <laughs> there you go. That tells you a lot. So I think the frequency of communication, um, people, leaders who realized that early on and began um, to communicate, but I think even more so than that, uh, I did a call with Ray Johnston of Bayside Church last week, and uh, Ray's an incredible leader, one of the most energetic, passionate leaders, even in his 60s, probably more so than anybody I know. Um, and to prove that point, he's not only leading Bayside Church, a, a massive church in Northern California, he's also the interim at, at Willow Creek at the yeah, exact same no time. no kidding. Um, so just, just an incredible pastor and doing some amazing things at both churches right now. Um, but one of the things that was astounding to me was we were talking, a, a we had a couple different conversations over the course of the last few weeks. And one of the things that is coming out of communication, more frequent communication, but is connection. And this, so, um, a guy on our team that does development work named David Duncan actually said, if you're in a church and you don't have all these digital solutions, you don't have the right email database and all those other things to begin communicating with your church. He just goes, pick up the phone, mm. pick up the phone and start calling people. And one of the things that Ray shared when we started unpacking that is the need to just connect and go, how are you doing? Like, we're just here. And Ray started sharing at Bayside Church. Like they had a phone call and I think it's been multiple times now, but they had a phone call and somebody was elderly did not have a lot of tech in their house and they were very, very isolated. And they went on Amazon, bought a, a Roku or an Apple TV or something like that and went to that person's house and set up their internet on their TV, got the Roku running. So it wasn't just helping people with food. It was having a conversation and listening for needs. And here's what's gonna blow you away. His team made 32,000 phone calls. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yep. That's probably one of the trends, Sean. I'll just, I'll just let that sink in for a minute. Yeah. But uh, as I've connected with everyone from Life Church to Central Church to I think North Point to, I'm going to drop a whole bunch here, but Bayside, yeah. but these are, yeah. these are some of the largest churches in America. Mm -hmm. What blew me away, and they've got all the technology, they got all the channels, they got all the devices, they're, they're right up there. Um, but those are the churches that I know of that have made the most phone calls. Mm -hmm. And Meanwhile, you see some small churches, churches canceled. And I've heard of other stories where it's like, well, I sent out an email a week and that's all I'm doing right now in this crisis. There's nothing more I can do. And like, you're only serving mm -hmm. 150 people. It's like, you can make 15 phone calls a day. You can yeah. do that. And if they can do it, like you mm -hmm. can do it. It's, it's really amazing to me how almost instinctively uh, these larger churches have gone even to old school technology 
and said, we're just going to call everybody we know. We're going to make thousands of phone calls. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really incredible. I want to go back to margin because yeah. the, one of the things that really surprised me, even by March 15th, March 23rd in that mm-hmm. window, and it's funny, we all know what those dates are now because we all live through it. It's like, where were you on 9-11, right? Everybody knows where they were. The amount of financial panic that was immediate. I mean, mm-hmm. we're going to lay off. We're going to we're going to mm-hmm. shut down. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. So let's talk about financial margin because your day job, you work with CDF Capital. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, you finance hundreds, thousands of churches and organizations. Any thoughts? Like most Americans, most Canadians live paycheck to paycheck. It's mm-hmm. like you know, if I miss one of these checks, we're not making rent, and that unfortunately has come home in a huge, huge way for personal finance. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we try to keep a bit of a financial runway. It's one of the reasons we're still in business and on because, mm-hmm. you know, we've had income loss like everybody else has. Yeah. Uh, but you keep a little bit aside and you can keep doing the podcast and you can keep doing this and keep doing that. And so we got a runway to move into the future. What advice would you have to leaders who have never operated with that kind of runway? Just in terms of having some financial margin? Having some financial margin, having yeah. an ability to say, if all the taps got turned off tomorrow, we've got, you know, two weeks, a month, six months mm-hmm. ahead of us. Yeah. I, um, we have a friend, Casey Graham, um, who yeah. mutual friend who provided some wisdom years ago as a personal coach for me. And I've tried to be a student of the philosophies of leaders. And I, I think it's like just about everything, you know, having nothing to where if giving goes down next week, you're, you're, you're not able to pay your staff or pay your, your bills. Um, that's not good. But I also know churches that have millions in the bank and it sort of becomes like this protected golden calf thing that like, oh, well, we, and and I actually worked with the church through a transition because I spend probably about 75% of my time helping churches through transitions. And this was a fairly large church that a lot of people would know. And they had millions, tens and tens of millions of dollars in the bank. And they brought that up in a conversation. And there was a tone that's like, well, we're going to do fine through this transition because we have money. And let's all go to bed and sleep soundly. Meanwhile, the critical leadership things that they needed to be paying attention to, they weren't because they they felt so good about how large the bank, the savings account was. So I don't think hmm. extremes and tend to be very, very good. That's a good point. And, and yet at the same point, you know, the pendulum never swings to the middle. It always swings from side to side. Well, we had too little. Now, now we're going to shoot for having too much. We had too much. Now we're going to shoot for having too little. So I do think that they're, they're, I'll just, I mean, this isn't the answer for every church, but as an executive pastor, we had 12 weeks. We, mm. we, could, we could run our church for 12 weeks with no income. And was our church unlikely to have any in, or like go down from, right. from to full, zero. full income to no. zero? No. So the likelihood is we could actually, you know, get ahead of it, stay in the black, stay out of red ink uh, by making making good, tough, but heavy and yet good decisions that 12 weeks could last, you know, six months or a year, just depending on things. And then also you can always make make some cuts, some logical cuts. But um, so I don't, I don't know that 12 weeks is the answer for every church, mm. but I do know if you have enough in the bank that you are avoiding making critical decisions that you should be losing sleep over as a leader. It's just part of leadership. Then you've got too much 
And if you can't make it a week or two, because sometimes decisions take that long to assess the situation, figure out what's going on, make a decision and implement action. We talked about a little earlier, it took two to three weeks for even the, the, the most nimble churches to really get some action plans in place. So um, I think that has to be probably for me, what I would recommend is leaders consider kind of the lower end is three, three to four weeks at a minimum, maybe, maybe 12 to 16 is kind of in the middle range. And if you have years worth of, of budget in, in your savings, then, then pray about it and figure out what, what God may be calling you to do. Probably give with some that of that away. Yeah, yeah. It's never, never yours to hoard. I think that's really sound advice. And, you know, I hadn't, it's such a interesting time. I hadn't thought about having too much because that is not the normal story, but I can see mm-hmm. how that can make you arrogant, how that can make you lazy and how it can put you in a place where you're like, yeah, we don't need to do anything. We'll just reopen the doors eventually when this thing happens again. And by that point, mm-hmm. you've, you've, you're so out of it that you're, and you know, that is the case. Like I've, mm-hmm. I've joked for years and others, I'm not alone, but you know, the churches with no people have money in buildings and mm-hmm. the churches with the people have no building and no money. And there is a correlation there that if you have hundreds of thousands or millions in the bank and a building that's paid for and no people, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, well, we'll just, the eight mm-hmm. of us will be here. The 80 of us, the 800 of us will be here next week. And there's no urgency and it's interesting because, yeah, it's funny. I measure my financial runway in the company in months, not in years. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a healthiness to it because it keeps you hungry. Um, on the other hand, Absolutely. you don't have to panic, right? Yep. Yeah. And you guys, by the way, you know that has served the church in huge ways over the last 30 days. The, the way that you guys were able to just give away crisis leadership courses and stay engaged and, and launch things like the Church Pulse Weekly and things like that amidst all this. Um, if you didn't have some margin, you wouldn't have been able oh, to do that. Oh, we would have been dead. So we would have been gone. That, yeah. That's been a huge gift. But yeah, I do. It's probably my hermeneutics probably a little off on this, but the story of the the guy who basically fills up his storehouses and stuff and, and is called just, a fool because your life yeah. will be taken from you tomorrow I sort of reflect on that and go, okay, well, if if I am running a ministry and I have tens and tens of millions of dollars in the bank um, and my life was taken from me tomorrow, could I pause and dream and say, no, there could that we, we could have made a difference in lives today or in this in the moment, in the season um, that I want to be a part of as a leader. I want to be a part of using those resources to change lives and introduce people to Jesus and grow disciples so I, I don't think there's any right answer. I don't want to sound overcritically of people that have no, no, been no. on either end, but I, I do think the spirit of it needs to be reexamined and a good, healthy conversation with people with, see, here's a great leadership principle. How many people speak into your life that don't think like you and mm. really do not have a, a much of a filter? We all need some people in our lives who are going to tell it like they see it with confidence and, um, I, and, and with love and grace. Um, and I think it, it, leaders, this is a great one to get differing opinions, people who don't think like you and who will tell it like it is and engage with them on this. And in this season, it's critical for every leader to really have a good sound process and, and set of guardrails around this if you didn't going into this. So it's a great opportunity to begin to engage some talent. You know, that's, that's good. You need some Enneagram eights in your life right now just to, <laughs> to hit you over the head. But it's funny because I'm, think, I'm just thinking about this in real time. I didn't expect the conversation to go here. But yeah, I've had people advice in the last year that says anything from 30 days in the bank to a year in the bank 
and mm-hmm. we haven't landed on either side of the extreme. But I think you're right. Not not having an infinite runway keeps you hungry and yeah. humble. And um, you know, the other side of oh, I got a day in the bank or a week in the bank that makes you panic and make mm-hmm. really bad decisions. And enables you not to serve. I remember a, a message back when we had almost no financial margin personally yeah. that Andy Stanley preached probably in the early 2000s. And he said, you know, if God called you to the mission field, would you have the financial resources or the margin to quit what you're doing and just kind of go? And I know my answer at that time was like, are you kidding me? I No, no. Who has that kind of money? And again, we're not like independently wealthy or anything, but when you're in a different place and you've got that kind of margin that it's like, well, if I had to drop everything for a couple of months, I could do it. Um, that's a good feeling. And I think, you know, you don't want to produce hoarders out of this either or greedy people. Uh, but I think you're right. That whole service filter, like how can we serve? This isn't my money. It's God's. It's probably going to recalibrate what happens. Um, I don't know whether you're old enough. I'm old enough. We're close, but not that close. Uh, where I was remembering in this first month, all kinds of people I knew as a kid who lived through the depression and they, they were my grandparents age, but you know, they wouldn't waste a sheet of paper. It's like, you can reuse that. Absolutely. And yep. I think that's going to shape the mindset of this generation, particularly Gen Z, as they go into the future going, yeah, I remember when both my parents were out of work and we had to rely on government handouts. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, or I was a leader and I was the first to get let go because I was 21 years old and they fired me before they fired anyone else. Yeah. I was talking to Dusty Rubeck, my boss at mm. uh, CEO at CDF Capital, and he said, I remember my grandparents still had a, a sock darner so they could darn their socks even that. into old age because that's those are principles they learned through the Great Depression that they, they kept with them their whole life. And, and you're absolutely right. We, uh, we have short memories around a lot of things, but things mm-hmm. like this, life-altering things, especially that, that are survival and fear- um, I think there are going to be things that stay with us for a hundred years. I remember, uh, not to belabor the point, but my grandparents' friends would sometimes say, why are you so wasteful? And I'd be like, I don't know. I'm growing up in a sea of plenty. What's wrong with you? Right? <laughs> That's what you're thinking, <laughs> kind of. Exactly. And, uh, but now I get it. I get it. Okay, Sean, you know, I was going to ask you all about succession. I think that's round two of this podcast at some point. We've just, this yeah. has been such a rich vein on crisis management. It is early days. Nobody really knows, even by May 5th when this thing airs or whenever it airs, what the future is going to look like. But I'd love mm-hmm. for you to uh, just, because I, I thought your interesting scenario about, well, what if it's 18 months until there's a vaccine and you can actually go to an NFL game or get together with a thousand other people or 10,000 other people or 500 other people at church in the same room and mm-hmm. not worry about whether you're going to contract a, a fatal disease. I thought that was really helpful. Um, do you want to postulate for a little bit on some of the things that you think, yeah, probably this is going to be part of the new normal? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'm thankful for so many leaders. I won't list them all that I've been able to just think cr- critically about this and be- begin. I think post-Easter, everybody has a certain amount of mental energy that they're putting into, okay, okay. What is this going to look like? And I think there's probably some over-optimism like, oh yeah, and sometime in May, we're back to business as usual. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, I'm going to say some stats that are off, but I think they're close. You know, I think there's somewhere between 80 and 90% of the churches in in North America are under 100. Mm-hmm. Um, those churches will probably be affected differently. Um, 
than than churches that average you know 500 and up. Um, but as we begin to look to May, I, I do think there's going to be an approach where um, those that are considered high risk are still going to be in in some sort of, of level of quarantine, maybe even similar to the lockdown that we kind of are all in now. And I know that regions like New York of states, state or yeah. San Francisco versus yep. Nebraska, just to yep. pick a state. Yeah. Yeah. I was on the phone with, with somebody recently who said there's a quarter million people in my County and we have three cases and nobody's hospitalized. Like everybody here's chomping at the bit to get back to some sense of getting the economy going. And it's forcing, there's a few big businesses here that, that make furniture or whatever, and it's forcing layoffs to the tune of thousands, even this, this week. And so, um, I do think that there are certain pockets where you can look and say that region and low risk people in that region can get back um, to some sense of normalcy. To me, that seems highly appropriate than a unilateral stance. I do think it's, it's probably likely we will have some clarity on that before May. And we may even have some implementation of that before May. Um, Every, I think there, there needs to be a percentage of us that realize that if there's a spike um, my hope would be that if there's another resurgence at some point that, that we get better at this and we can get more localized in the restrictions. But if there's a resurgence in your area, it doesn't really matter if it's localized or not. You're going to go back into probably a lockdown. And there's there's a 10 or 20% possibility that things like that could happen until we have a vaccine. So we could be toggling in and out of virtual slash physical church. I mean, I'm not sure virtual is going to be shut down. You know what I mean? You're, you're not yeah. going turning that dial back, but- where access to building, shopping, life as we know it may be intermittent from time to time. Yeah, I don't think that'll happen uh, US-wide, but I think there could be areas where we go, oh, we're seeing a resurgence here. We're looking at our ICU beds and things like that, and we need to tighten things down to make sure we don't see a larger spike. So those are possibilities, but in general, I think gatherings, large gatherings, um, let's just say, I think in May, we're going to start seeing some openings in the, in the 50 range. And if we continue to take good precautions and social distancing measures alongside that by summer, I think that could go up into the the hundreds. And so that's Mm -hmm. why I say some smaller churches could potentially gather their entire congregation, in my opinion, probably over the next few months, whereas larger churches will, will not be able to maybe for, for years, um, and then I do think, so, so that's sort of some things about, um, measures and restrictions that the authorities would be, be responsible for. So it would be a tiered response, more a localized response, um, and churches will have to respond to that differently. But then also the idea of really thinking through with your leadership teams, what things are actually good that hmm. we have we have seen happen in our church or churches we're connected with that we want to continue to do or or implement um you know one of the the opportunities and actually responsibilities is is there's a lot of churches that have seen more first time decisions for for Christ through this hmm. than any than ever before you've got you got a responsibility now to disciple and to connect with those people and so what are your methods for that um, and you're going to be able to start dreaming if those are if those are small group level things that you plan that could be really healthy. I mean, the, the church could be more on mission, more relevant to its community, more engaged in circles rather than rows, in terms of groups rather than big gatherings. 
So um, there could be some real opportunity in the tiered reopening of our worlds to use those as foundational building blocks, not to say we're going to put it on the whiteboard while we're on lockdown, it's there, but then we're going to erase it and go back to business as normal. So I hope churches begin to dream and get creative and find things that are working for them and find opportunities and potential in that. And then they share the wins because there's going to be lots of great best practices out there. And so sharing those wins and seeing those cascade into other churches, um, I'm, I'm eager for there's probably going to be dissertations written about this, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, and you know, let me let me ask you a couple of other questions on the new normal too, because in the early days, people were talking about a V-shaped recovery that as much as the stock market fell off a cliff and massive unemployment, you know, they'll just be this just as rapid rebound. That's at the time yeah. of recording. I don't think anyone's really expecting that right now. And again, mm-hmm. by early May, could be totally different. Everything's changing day to day. Um, but there was a sense in church world and to some extent in business that it would be a light switch, lights off, lights on. Do you think there's any model of church that can just be lights on again and go back to normal? No, I've, I've heard some leaders make that argument and I totally respect their opinion. And there probably will be on the smaller end of churches, there'll probably be a few churches where there is a bounce back, you know, kind of this, you know, kind of like we're back and, you know, we've got yeah. this vigor yeah, and attitude. Yeah, 30 people, like, it's always been these yes. 30 people and they're back. Yeah. Yeah. But I think even if the restrictions were lifted, there's still so much fear that so many people have. They've been hurt and wounded by fearing for their lives for and, and cut off in, in isolation, fearing for their jobs or even losing their jobs in this. Um, I don't see there being that 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 elastic rebound. Um, I think the new normal on the other side of whatever it is we're now, and where we are now is not the new normal, we're in some in-between phase, um, will be a higher level of concern, especially for certain um, parts of the population for gatherings of, of any size. And the church needs not to be tone deaf to that. The church needs to receive that and ultimately minister and pastor through that and develop systems and put the right people in charge of ways of leading through that. Well, and you know, here's the thought. I hadn't had this why I love these conversations and this is happening in real time. Uh, But you know, a a lot of our churches, they minister to uh, under 60s, you know, intergenerational, lots of young Mm -hmm. adults, that kind of thing. But you think about a more traditional church setting where the average age might be 65 or 70, Gathering might look very different for people in that more vulnerable age category or people with other complicating health gatherings that it's just not the free pass it has been in the past. And then how do you minister to that? Any other final thoughts on the new normal? And then I want to ask you about your podcast. Oh, final thoughts on the new normal. I I, I just hope there's a spirit of... Um, opportunity that churches see to um, to make adjustments. We've seen adjustments of all kinds that were reactionary in the last 30 days. And I just hope there, there's a spirit of God's on the throne. Um, there are certain things that we don't have to worry about. But when we go on a journey, um, here's the expectation. We're going to leave something behind. Hmm. Um, God's going to take us through something as he's taking us to something and where we're going, the two of where we're going 
is going to be somewhat unknown, right? It's it's Abraham. It's really started out as Terah, his father, his journey out of Ur through Haran, and then Abraham's call into the promised land, to the land that I will show you. And that's a beautiful thing because um, Hebrews 11 says, um, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And verse six says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So as we leave things behind, we we get transformed through things, which can be hard, but where he's going requires faith. But when we do that, when we proceed toward the unknown with faith that God's on the throne, that he's going to do something through this, um, we have the opportunity. That's the foundational piece of pleasing God. And so I hope there's a real spirit of this. I don't want to be ignorant that there's a lot of pain in churches right now that are struggling through this. Um, but that's our job is to to begin to understand, to be on the journey that God knows where the destination is. And we'll find out eventually our job's just to take the next few steps. So what are you learning from podcasting? It is a fascinating <laughs> podcast. And I yeah. got to tell you, if you're a young leader who is going to inherit something or someone in my shoes ready to hand something off, it's a must listen to, and it's just a treasure trove of leadership insights. And uh, you get a little sampling of it today in this interview. So what are you learning as a podcaster? Yeah. Well, I'm so honored to be able to record conversations with leaders that I have so much respect for. Um, and their time's important. And obviously the time of the listener invested into that. And I think the thing that I'm learning is everybody has aspects of their story that people still don't know that in, in, in many cases are personal but there's insightful things there that really help you as a student um, trying to get better, trying to, to develop in whatever it is that you're doing. A lot of our first episodes are really focused on transition leadership, um, and that'll shift as we finish up our, our 11th episode. And so for me, it's just everybody has such an amazing story that I don't yet know, that my listeners don't yet know mm. And I get to be a part of putting a microphone out and sharing that with the world. And it's infinitely scalable, right? So any, one person can listen to it. Thousands of people can listen to it. And, and to me, um, that's probably been the, the biggest learning. And then just on a personal level, I've just found I, I've enjoyed that. I was really concerned if I was going to be good at it. And I finally just said, I don't know if I'll be good at it or not, but I'm seeing passion and joy come out of me getting to do these interviews. And um, man, it's just, it, the whole thing has been an absolute wonderful ride. And we've been at it for about six months now. And, and by the way, Carrie, you were on my, my podcast and I thought about this the other day because you've, you've got some great listenership and it's just amazing how God's blessed you with that influence. And you did my podcast when I had zero listeners because we hadn't launched yet. And so just what, what an honor it was for you to say yes and dive into that with me. Well, you got stuff out of me that I re-listened to the interview recently and I'm like, yeah, Sean's good. You got stuff out of me and I get interviewed a lot. And uh, it, was, it was a joy. Well, uh, listeners, you got a insight into why I have three-hour breakfasts and dinners with Sean and uh, why when we hang out, uh, time always seems to fly. I didn't get to half my questions. We'll have to have you back down the road when maybe things have new normalized a bit. I'm in. We'll talk yeah. about succession and what you're learning because I think that's a whole other show. Uh, and mm -hmm. business leaders, that's a huge problem for business leaders. It's like they got no successor. I read a stat years ago that like 90% of businesses die with their founder. And uh, you don't want to mm. see that happen in the church world. Uh, you're no. a ninja at that. 
And uh, so we'll have to come back and, and do part two down the road. But Sean, thank you so much. So Leaders in Living Room podcast, just available everywhere. Mm-hmm. And where's sort of uh, home base for you and where can people track with you online? I think the best way to track with me online is through social media, just at underscore Sean Morgan. Everything I'm doing, I'm going to have on, on there. And um, the next thing, if you wanted to track with what we're doing really with with leadership circles and cohorts would be the Ascent Leader dot org, the ascent leader.org. Uh, but even that stuff I'll have on, I'll post it on my social anytime we're doing stuff there. So if you want to get into one of those groups, Sean has talked about, that's the way to do it. And I've hosted one of those groups. You guys spent a yes. couple of days here at my house last year, back when we used to meet in person. It was great. It was great. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Cooked some big green egg, did a lot of hanging it's, out. It was awesome. Yeah. It was, it was one for the record books for sure. Yeah. All right, Sean, thank you so much. I so Thanks, appreciate Jay. it. As always, I have learned a ton. Me too. Me too. And thanks to your listeners. Man, I love Sean's heart and also his insight. They are, (laughs) his insight is like laser sharp focused. If you want to drill a little bit deeper or check out transcripts or the show notes, make sure you head on over to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 338. I've got a what I'm thinking about segment. I'm going to talk about how to dull your innovation curve and miss the future. There are ways, I think we're in a really interesting time and all the innovation you've done over the last two months is perhaps in danger. So we're going to talk about that. But uh, I also want to say, hey, if you're new to the podcast, we have seen that spike in traffic. Uh, Really welcome. Uh, I know it's an unusual spring. I'm listening to birds chirping as I record this outside my window. And yet the world is a very different place. We're doing everything we can to help you. I've got an email list. We send out an almost daily email to over 60,000 leaders. The gateway to everything else I do beyond this podcast is at kerryneuhoff.com. If you can't spell that, which I understand, go to leadlikeneverbefore.com. If you love this episode, leave a rating and review. And then next week, long-awaited episode, my conversation with Tim Keller. Tim is, I think, one of those people who we are going to be reading 100 years from now. Not a lot of people alive on the planet for whom that's true. He'll be one of those. He is a renowned preacher, author, thought leader. And uh, Tim and I spent, uh, well, the better part of two hours together. And I bring you a long, detailed conversation with Tim Uh, We met before the whole COVID crisis in New York City. It was probably going on, but nobody really knew about it at the time. We met up in his offices, and here's an excerpt. He says, ducklings want to swim. There's such a thing as water. Babies want to suck milk. There's such a thing as milk. Desires don't exist unless satisfaction for those desires exists. And if you find in yourself a desire for something that nothing in this world can satisfy, it probably means you were made for another world. Now, that's logical, and yet it's basically working on emotion. It's really not. It's not the evidence for the resurrection. It's not saying there's the existence of God. It was trying to say there is an emptiness in you that you can either say, I'm going to find it in this world, or you can say, I'm going to kill my desire for happiness and then become a real cynic and, and snob. Or you can say there's actually something else out there. There's another way. So that's next time on the podcast. Also coming up, we have Danielle Strickland, Patrick Lencioni, Henry Cloud, Annie F. Downs, Paula Ferris from ABC News, uh, Sam Collier's back, Mark Miller from Chick-fil-A, Ryan Hawk, and so many others. Oh, did I mention John Eldridge? Yeah, it's going to be a great, great lineup coming up. And uh, well, we want to just get behind you as much as possible. And uh, so what have I been thinking about lately? Well, I have been thinking about 
how to keep innovating in a world where you're just longing for normal. And what I'm thinking about is brought to you by Generis. Make sure you check out their new book, Your 2020 Budget Just Blew Up. Now what? Go to generis.com forward slash carry 2020 and check out uh, Promedia Fire. You realize how important digital is? So do they. You get 40% off the original price of the Pro Media Fire team by going to promediafire.com forward slash church growth. So, yeah, you know, if you think back over the last two months, you've done more innovating probably in the last two months pivoting than you've done in a long, long time. Uh, you went from meeting in person to meeting online. You went from leading your team in person to leading your team remotely. You went from a stable financial plan to a completely new financial plan predictable org chart to a flexible org chart. And you went from not knowing how to make it work to probably figuring out how to make it work at some level. And that kind of innovation curve is amazing. Now, the challenges right now, you probably feel it, I feel it, we're all longing for like, can things please be more stable? And yes, ultimately, they need to be more stable. But what's at risk is you will unintentionally and quickly stop your innovation curve and as a result, miss the future. If you think about it, uh, it's not just crises like the global pandemic that get in the way of innovation. Companies and organizations get disrupted all the time. One day you're running a great hotel. Next day, a couple of college grads who are broke decide to rent out an air mattress for 80 bucks and Airbnb is born and it disrupts an entire industry. You bought a taxi medallion in New York City worth a million dollars and then Uber comes along and changes the game. I mean, interruption and disruption are a normal part of life. Now, one of the challenges you'll have, the easiest way to kill your innovation curve, I want to share four with you. One is, think of what's happening right now as an interruption, not a disruption. It's been really interesting to see the tone online shift uh, in late April. And I'm sure by the time you hear this in early May, because I see a lot of leaders going, you know what, this isn't a big deal. It's almost like denial. It's like, this is just an interruption. Everything's going to go back to normal. Well, I'd love to believe that's true. I'm not sure that's actually true. Because if you look at how many multiple factors there are in the world right now, and even in America and Canada and uh, North America, you end up with like an economy that is really uncertain, industries that are struggling, um, a variable government response, depending from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I mean, life as we knew it isn't back. And it's also accelerated things like, you know, businesses are now saying, well, why are we paying all this money in rent? And uh, are we really going to do that much travel in the future when you look at how much travel costs and virtual actually works? So if the current crisis is a disruption, leaders who see it as an interruption will be disrupted in the future. So I would really encourage you to see this as a disruption and continue to plan for the future. Hope I'm wrong, but in case I'm not, what have you got to lose? A second way to kill all the innovation you've experienced so far is just settle for the changes you've made. Uh, just because you found something that works doesn't mean you found what works best. Just because you found a new pattern doesn't mean it won't become a holding pattern. And just because you've made progress doesn't mean you've realized your potential. So I've seen a lot of leaders six, eight weeks into the crisis kind of settle in and go, okay, I think we found it. Let's just, let's just rest there and listen. I get it. You're tired, uh, but keep innovating, keep experimenting. The future belongs to the innovators and crisis is the cradle of innovation. So I would keep going on that. Third thing, and I, I feel this too, 
Let your fatigue make the decisions for you. Uh, I found this, uh, I was in a meeting last week and uh, we were pushing for something brand new, which you're going to hear about very soon. I, I got to tell you, I just felt it in myself. I'm like, well, we could wait another month or whatever. And then I realized, wait a minute, that's my fatigue talking. Now, I need to get good sleep. I need to get exercise. Self-care is really important in normal times. It's 10 times more important during crisis. My goodness, I got to tell you, don't let your fatigue make decisions for you. Take care of yourself and let the mission determine your decisions. That quick pivoting you did uh, in the first few weeks, yeah, that is actually a really good strategy. I'm going to have more to say on that. And then number four, this is just the fourth idea. Just if you want to kill all the innovation that you've experienced and the growth you've experienced with that, just stop disrupting yourself. I really believe that you either disrupt yourself or you get disrupted. And uh, we've had to pivot here on the podcast. I mean, I took a whole bank of shows that were done for the spring and we moved them into the summer and I brought you all of these episodes, everything you've heard in the last month and will hear for the most part uh, over the next month or two are newly recorded episodes to help you with the crisis. Uh, you know, I had all kinds of speaking events canceled, so I changed. But I also realized it's really important to disrupt myself. What does this make possible? What can I keep doing to keep changing? Because otherwise you're going to get incremental results. Incremental change brings incremental results. So uh, it's a highly dangerous practice to let circumstances force you to change. First, circumstances are entirely out of your control. Second, they catch you unprepared. And third, by the time external change happens, it's too late for organizations that were status. So best practice moving forward, keep disrupting yourself. You either disrupt yourself or you'll be disrupted. I really believe that. So I love all the innovation that's happening. I'm a change guy. And I want you not to miss the future, but to seize it. Things are changing deeply. And that's what I'm thinking about these days. We are back next time with a fresh episode. I am so excited to bring you Tim Keller. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.